taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, starting off with the word of the Lord, coming to you from 1 Corinthians 15.20, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, and Curtis, we've got another guest, the 80s theme, see if you can catch this one. Still, still, still can't figure that one out. Can't remember it. So this is the show. Used to come on ABC, TGI Fridays. This was the show called Growing Pains. <laughs> so I saw that the other day. I thought this would be a mm. good one for our little game that we've been doing. I uh, guess the 80s theme. And so that one was Growing Pains uh, coming. I guess that was from the 80s or 90s. I Growing think it was. Pain. Maybe even been the 90s. I'm not sure. But. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we've had a great series on Christology. It, so. And uh, and looking forward to this next one. But uh, So, yeah, that was one that uh, I think came on Fridays on ABC, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> uh, I mean, I remember watching the uh, Mutual of Omaha, the animal one. So that was always fun. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Brian, we got uh, we got a little bit of announcement. You kind of uh, put that up on uh, on the uh, on an article or a quick little blurb on the website. You want to go ahead and uh, tell us about uh, some exciting news there. Yeah, we haven't haven't officially announced it on Bellator Christie yet, but we have uh, we've actually announced one, but we haven't announced the other one. Uh, we have two more individuals who've actually joined Bellator Christie here the last uh, week, and uh, we are excited about these two individuals. Two more PhD candidates uh, joining us uh, on the Bellator Christie team. We have first of all Dina Huff. Uh, who lives in Oklahoma. Uh, she's been part of several different podcasts and uh, uh, teaches in her church, as well as uh, uh, d- other teaching ministries she has in the Oklahoma area. And then we also have a, uh, another lady joining us who's just, uh, both of them just fantastic women, uh, Shireen uh, uh, Kula, I think is how you say her last name. I may have mispronounced her last name. But Shireen, we'll, we'll say Shireen. Uh, Corey, I think is how you say it. I'm sorry. Corey, Shireen Corey. Uh, she's coming to us. Uh, she lives in Virgin- the Virginia area, and uh, she's originally from uh, in, in the Syria area. Uh, so, but for protection, we won't be we won't be posting pictures of her. But uh, she is just a wonderful scholar. She does a lot of work in uh, in Islamic studies and in apologetics, uh, defending Christian faith uh, in a, in a Islamic uh, sectors. And so, she brings a lot of uh, wisdom uh, to to our team as well. And uh, I'm just excited. Our team is growing world class. I mean, it is unbelievable how God is really, truly growing this ministry. Uh, far, far expanding uh, anything I could ever think or, or imagine. 
God always just uh, blows your mind when he's just in, on the move, bringing stuff and doing stuff. And it goes to show you just the same stuff that we talked about. The just the very fact that it that this podcast gets heard worldwide, yeah, kind of makes you just dumbfounded, just flat out dumbfounded. Well, and the other day, I mean, uh, I don't know that we announced this or not, but uh, the other day I posted on our little group chat that uh, for the first time we had we had uh, an equal amount of views. Normally, the United States, you know, being in the United States, we get the most views you know, in this area, being, being that it is the nation from which we are, uh, you know, broadcast sure. uh, and post. But the other day, we had a situation where another country, the country of the Philippines, the nation of the Philippines, actually was tied with the United States with a number of views. I mean, it was way up there uh, for, for view, views, and it was tied. So it wasn't just a United States thing. It was a global thing that was going on that day. And it's amazing. Some articles, some some podcasts, they just really take off, and you really don't know which ones are going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. So we're on uh, our uh, part eight of the Christology. Um, so, so today, I guess we're going to discuss the resurrection of Jesus um, on our twentieth uh, episode um, here. And so, man, it's just unbelievable how far <laughs> we've gotten in this. Um, just last week's uh, good, and I just um, I encourage all of our listeners to actually go back and just. Um, Listen to, you know, listen to the past podcasts, maybe even uh, write down some some things because all of it continues from the first all the way till now. Just all of it can pile on to itself and, and pile on to uh, information that you can actually record, take down, write down and have recorded in your brain. So anyway, I think we should go ahead and get started here. Um, I'm going to start off. What is the difference between a resurrection and a resuscitation? Now, this this is an important thing for us to remember as we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, mm-hmm. because when we see Jesus raising people from the dead, such as in such as Lazarus in uh, was it John chapter eleven, I believe, uh, Elijah mm-hmm. raises the. Uh, the son of a was it Elamite woman, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, Shunammite woman. Shunammite, yeah, yeah, Shunammite woman. He he raises the son of of this woman, and there are there are several cases. I mean, Jesus multiple times raises people from the dead, and they're normally called resurrections. And there's nothing wrong with that, but understand there's a there's a world of difference between. The resurrection or resuscitation, as we'll call them, from what was performed by Jesus and these other uh, prophets in, in biblical times as compared to uh, a resurrection. And let me just go ahead and say, if you look at Craig Keener's book, Miracles, uh, resurrections are still happening today, or resuscitations are still happening today. Uh, God is still doing those type of things even in today's time. Now, they're not normal, obviously, uh, but he still he still has that miracle-working power today as he has in times past. Now, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus that happened on the first Easter Sunday, 
here we're talking about a completely transformed body. So a resuscitation, as we'll call it, whenever Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead or, in, or the prophet Elijah raised the, the, the son of this woman from the dead, the key thing to remember in all these cases, and even with the resurrections that take place now or the resuscitations that take place now, a person comes back to life from the dead, but they all will die again. With a resurrection, you're talking about a complete transformation of the body into a new form, a new state. It's kind of like a metamorphosis as a, as a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's a new metamorphosis that takes place, bringing that physical body to a glorified body. And this body is one that shall never die again. And so when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus we're talking about this glorified, transformed body as opposed to the resuscitations that took place in John 11 and these other cases. How would you like to have been in Lazarus' shoes? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Lord, leave me alone. I'm already home. <laughs> well, and really, if we think about it, when people suffer near-death experiences or they experience near-death experiences, they're actually yeah. having resuscitations. They're having these exact things, same things happen. They died. Their body physically died. Their spirit leaves the body. They have these encounters, these experiences, and they come back. So when we're talking about near-death experiences, we're talking about these things. So for individuals in many times who have these cases on many occasions, they really don't want to come back. They don't really want to, don't want to come back uh, to this world. But they realize that maybe they have something to do, that, that there's some type of God-ordained mission for them to have. So so I, I kind of envision that maybe they have, or that Lazarus had the same type of experience that some of these folks have you know, with the near-death experiences, that there was maybe this little hesitation when he said, Lazarus, come forth. Maybe he was in heaven saying, no, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, Car the uh, Lazarus, the song that Carmen had. Oh uh, yeah, back in the day, makes me makes me laugh because it's like he's like, no, I, I really don't want to. No, <laughs> no, what what is this? <laughs> I was talking uh, to somebody the other day about uh, about that. I think we were even talking about the champion song where the countdown happens, where the resurrection of Jesus <laughs> comes about. That's that's great stuff. That's great stuff. <laughs> That brings back a lot of old memory. <laughs> so, Brian, what are the different theories about the resurrection of Jesus? So there are there are five, and uh, you know th these are different theories. We'll talk about some of them. Obviously, uh, are are part of the skeptical mindset, but uh, they're actually even beyond this. So these are kind of the overarching categories we see on how people approach the resurrection of Jesus mm. in general. So so there are some people. And you see this especially among the Jesus mythicist movement that, that talk about Christianity being a, uh, uh, a political theory. What is the name of that movie that came out? Um, something that was popularized on YouTube. I can see it in my mind. I just can't bring it to my – I just can't bring it out. But there was a movie. It was a documentary that uh, that that try to promote this very theory. They were trying to say that Jesus never existed. Oh. Um, 
Yeah. What is the name of it? It's going to yeah. drive me crazy I, now. I know which one you're talking about. Now, now you got me thinking and, and <laughs> thinking the same. You're, it's, it, I think that's contagious, that kind of thinking. Hey, I think uh, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that gummit. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, maybe we'll think about it by the time of the podcast ends. And I'm sure as we're listening back to it's the right, podcast, it's right or, here, it, you know what it is. And there may be somebody even listening say, "Hey, you is such and such thing." You know, we, you know. Anyhow, Geit um, Geit's uh, what is the name of it? It's it's Geit something. <laughs> almost coming. It's almost there. All right, but anyhow, it's this political theory that people have. That uh, that they say that the that Christianity was, and some people would even say uh, that uh, that that Christianity is a uh, political theory made by the Romans uh, to try to quell and, and calm the people. Obviously, there is no historical support for this whatsoever. If anything, you know, the early Christians were were not involved with the politics of Rome at all, uh, but they were preaching that you know Jesus was the Son of God come in the flesh. So uh, there's also the legendary theory. Uh, this is this is held by more skeptical individuals that would say that that uh, that the resurrection is merely a legend invented by later Christians to start a movement. Uh, so they were they were looking to start a religious cult of some sort, uh, but they used uh, they they embellished on some of the things uh, that happened in the historical Jesus to make this this new movement um, come forth. Also, there's the mistaken theory. Uh, this is, you actually find this in um, Islam, and you uh, see this with in some other uh, theories as well that someone else died on the cross instead of Jesus. Um, is that right of Islam? Now, now I'm messing that up. But anyhow, I know they don't believe in the resurrection. I think that I think that there's that viewpoint. And and somebody, if I'm wrong, just write me, leave a comment on the on the on the post, uh, letting me know. But uh, I believe there's the view in Islam that uh, that someone else died in Jesus's place, and Jesus was he ascended into heaven like Enoch, and he was you know uh, transported into heaven like Enoch, and he never he never really died. Uh, so there's that mistake mistaken identity theory. There's also the spiritual theory. There are some people, uh, Maurice Casey is one who uh, holds this view. He's a New Testament scholar uh, in uh, in England. Uh, he holds that that Jesus rose, but it wasn't a literal resurrection. It was something more along the lines of a spiritual resurrection. That uh, so that when the disciples saw the the resurrection of Jesus, they saw his spirit. They saw like a ghost, and they thought that he had risen from the dead. And so it wasn't a literal body. And so the fifth the fifth theory is a literal theory, and that's this is the Christian Orthodox theory that Jesus literally rose from the dead in a new body, a glorified body, completely transformed. Uh, from from the previous body that he had. So those are the five main theories that we find concerning the resurrection. Political, uh, that uh, that uh, Christianity is just basically a new political movement. The legendary theory, that it was embellished and, and invented by Christians to start a new religious cult. Uh, the mistaken theory, the idea that uh, someone else was crucified in Jesus' place. So therefore, if he didn't die, he didn't raise from the de- rise from the dead. The spiritual theory, that the resurrection was a spiritual event. And then a literal bodily resurrection uh, into the literal theory as well. So those are the five main theories that we can find as far as that people hold concerning the resurrection. Hmm. Is it was that movie was that movie that you're talking about or a documentary called Zeitgeist? It's Zeitgeist, that's it. 
Zeitgeist. Uh, yeah, and you had the Geist in there, but I couldn't think of what the first part of it was. Zeitgeist. Yeah, that's the yeah. movie. Thank you. Terrible. <laughs> that would have Terrible haunted me movie. for the rest of the night. <laughs> and this yeah, being Ash Wednesday when we were recording this, you know, so uh, it's only appropriate we talk about the resurrection, but man alive, that would have been <laughs> that would have haunted me for the rest of the night. Yeah. The the thing is is and, and this is kind of a common theme that I'm seeing through all of these um other theories of other um, of, of other theories of Jesus and um, the, the Bible and Christianity are all these they all take a portion of they all want to have a piece of Jesus but they don't want to apply all of it mm. all of him yeah, and that's that's the biggest charge against the historical Jesus movement, and I think there there is some uh, merit to the claim. And in fact, I've been reading a book uh, from a dissertation, dissertation studies on the different theories of the historical Jesus, and that's a charge brought against some historical Jesus theologians or historians, I should say, that it seems like many times people try to cast Jesus into their own image. They, you know, for some people, they they convey him as being a, a a liberal cynic, and other people cast him as being a socialist, and other people cast him as being uh, these different things. But as you said, Curtis, you're absolutely right. We've got to take the entire biblical data. We've got to take all the information given to us to get an accurate picture. And it's like what uh, one of the writers said in the book uh, that. Uh, Quite honestly, you cannot separate the uh, Christ of faith from the Jesus of history because they're one and the same. You know, you, you're not going to have a right picture if you don't have the Christ of faith because the Christ of faith is the historical Jesus. Right. right. And C.S. Lewis kind of put it into even even easier terms for us to to look at as he's either a, a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's that's kind of the criteria we have for de- for dealing what we have in the material. Uh, but yeah, but, I mean, but when you're looking at the historical Jesus studies, yeah, I mean, or or with not only that, with, with anything, you know, people do it today. Uh, no matter what it is, you know, we were talking before beforehand about you know different different issues we see going on in our society, and it does seem when it comes to Jesus. Uh, people will even now try to cast Jesus to be a lot like themselves. Uh, so if they're really embittered and enraged about certain issues, they really have a problem when you talk about where Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those uh, who who yeah. say bad things about you or whatever the case may be. Uh, so it's interesting how we take certain things and we, and we lose other aspects and i don't think we get the whole picture of jesus and so let me let me just say one last thing concerning this rather than us making jesus in our image the biblical model is for us to be made in the image of jesus so i think we have it completely backwards i think that'll preach amen So I think, like you said, uh, I think like like you said last week was I don't I don't know if too many people want Jesus to be uh, the leader of their church. Yeah, <laughs> because you know, in, and this isn't 
saying anything about any particular church or anything. I mean, it's just an overarching thing you see in denominations. You see it in churches. You see it in denominations. You see it in, in different things that it's all about growth, all about growth. And I get it. You know, there are a lot of suffering churches out there. There are a lot of suffering denominations out there that are concerned for their long-term viability. I get that. I understand. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> Let's just face the fact that when Jesus preached, people were willing to follow him as long as he performed miracles. But the moment yep. he started preaching the gospel, the true gospel, mm-hmm. then a lot of people left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, many of them said, oof, that's a hard saying. How can one <laughs> exactly. follow that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So then how do skeptics attempt to explain the resurrection of Jesus then? There are many that we could mention on the podcast. But so you know, when we talk mm-hmm. about the resurrection in our Christology series, we're just giving a, we're giving a, the 10,000 feet view of all the issues concerning the resurrection. Obviously, we could do a series of, of podcasts on the issue of resurrection. And in fact, if you go back in the history yep. of Bellator Christie, we have. I was looking back yep. at some of the materials... Uh, preparing for this podcast, even looking back at some of the the resurrection defense th- series, I think we did in uh, 2021 and 2018. There's some materials I, I, I posted out there on this very issue. So there's a lot of stuff out there already on Bellator Christie and uh, and other various ministries that you can find. But just to hit four of them, and again, there are many others, but these are these are three of the more popular ones, and one just to show how wonky some of these theories are. I had, I had a I had a bizarre one that's out there too. So three of the popular ones and one wonky one we'll, we'll look at. First of all, there's the swoon theory. And this is a theory you probably heard about. Mm-hmm. This is the theory that says that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he just passed out. He, he just passed out on the cross <laughs> and they thought he was dead, took him down from the cross. And they just, Let's just Get this image here <laughs> already. <laughs> Most people did not survive Roman scourgings. Not, not to be gross about it or, or too vivid right. about it, but let's just call it what it is. Most times people did not survive those. When Jews gave lashes mm-hmm. for punishment, they were limited to, to, to 40 lashes. Right. Romans tried to break your back. That's what they try to do. Yeah. They, if yeah. you look at these flagrums, they had pieces of bone and glass and nails in there that were intended to maim and desecrate the human body. Flesh. It was just intended yeah. to crush. And if yeah. you, um, it, the skin would rip, the skin would tear, the muscles and sinews would tear and rip apart. Many times it was said by yeah. historians that you could see the inside of a person uh, after they were done, that is how bad those Roman scourgings were. You could see the bones and you could see the insides after they were finished. That's how bad they were. It's not a surprise that after being up all night, beaten as he was and scourged, that Jesus couldn't carry the load of a hundred and ten pound beam across his back, carrying it up the hill right. to be crucified. That's not a surprise. Uh, he had lost a lot of blood by that time. Then you're going to take nails, Roman spikes, similar, you know, Roman spikes, and you're going to enter it in through the wrist. 
Into right. the wrist around the carpal tunnel, you know, where you have carpal tunnel in that, around that area, you're going to enter it through the wrist. Right. Okay, if a person wasn't dead already, if you remove that, guess what? You just severed a major artery there. Okay. Not only yeah. that, but you also have the 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 uh, the very accurate portrayal, of the the picture that John gives us in his gospel about seeing water and blood pouring out of the side of Jesus when a spear entered his side. That is a very medically accurate portrayal that he he, he described. Many medical mm-hmm. uh, experts believe that during. In fact, they've even done tests to not with live humans, but they, they did test to see, to have people in the posture of the cross to see what it did. And most people couldn't make it even 30 minutes, which, well, really even 10 minutes without already having a lot of pressure being placed upon their lungs and, and their heart rate going up. And they're not even nailed. They're just tied to this thing yeah. in that position. Yeah. And so um, mm-hmm. what is believed to have happened is that with the lack of oxygen and the pressure placed on the heart, fluid would have built around the part pericardial sac. And when the spear, whenever the heart stopped, the spear went in, and when that happened, the fluid from that pericardial sac along with the blood from the heart would have poured out the side. So what John reports is very accurate, medically speaking. As such... If you have a spear through the heart, you ain't surviving that. <laughs> You're not no. going to survive that. So it's just ludicrous. Even if it's possible, even if it were possible that someone could have survived the cross, you're going to put that person in a damp, cold uh, tomb for, what, two or three nights, and you're not going to have any medical attention to them whatsoever. It's just... It would take a greater miracle for something like that to happen than for an actual resurrection to take place. It's just it's beyond absurd. And not to take anything away from that, but to add to that, the Romans knew what death looked like. They Absolutely. were professional killers. Mm. And if they didn't succeed in their task, right, they would have been the one to have replaced the person they were supposed to have killed on the cross. On That's the right. Cross. So you're right. right. They were yep. professional killers, and they were very good at their job. Mm. So that one's out. That one's out. <laughs> <laughs> so the second one, you have the swoon theory. You have the second one, which is the stolen body theory. This is actually the oldest one. This is the oldest one. Uh, this was recorded in Matthew's Gospel, that it was uh, being broadcast around by the authorities that uh, mean the Sanhedrin to, for them to, they paid off the oh, Romans. That, that, that very day, that very next day. That very next, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The next day, whenever yeah. it was told what had happened, and they said, don't tell yeah. anybody, just go out and say that they stole the bodies. But now listen, let, hold on a second now. What's the chances of that happening? Okay, so the grave was known. <laughs> Everyone knew where Joseph of Arimathea's grave was. It was also it also had a seal around it. That didn't mean it was caulked. That seal was the official seal of Pontius Pilate 
so that if anyone broke that seal, it may have even been the emperor's seal, but I, I think it was probably Pontius Pilate's seal, that if anyone broke that seal, they would have been punished by death. Okay? Now... Yeah, they would have, they would have had the death sentence, yeah. A guard... Now, I've done some research on this. A guard is an official tally of an official unit of the Roman military. And a guard consisted of anywhere from around 8 to 16 soldiers. Most of the time it was 16. And they would have had a square. And what would have happened is that four of the individuals would have slept. When they were taking watch, four would have slept in front of of what they were guarding. The other... Uh, 12 individuals would have made a unit around like a block. It looked like a square. So you'd had four asleep during that shift, four on the right side. And if you're looking from the tomb out, four on the right side, four in the front, and four on the left side. And after so often, the four that were asleep would have been awakened. They would have stood up, and the whole thing would have shifted. The ones on the left would have slept. The ones at the front would have gone to the left. The ones at the right would have gone to the front. And the ones that had slept would have gone to the right. And so they did this so that they would have been able to rest uh, and would have been fresh. So even if... And listen, we've got you got 11 individuals that are scared. They're frightened. They're running from the authorities. They are hiding <laughs> out. What are the chances that those individuals would have been able to get past... 16 highly trained killers armed to the yep. T with spears, swords, and shields and, and the bronze armor that they would have worn as well. What are the chances of, of their success? Very slim to none. Also, even if that were possible, that is not a faith that's going to inspire people to, to uh, die for something they know to be true. Uh, that would have been a conspiracy. They, the the, the it, cat would have been out of the bag in no time flat whenever the pressure was placed upon him. Also, there were resurrection appearances that happened, proclaimed very early, as we're going to talk about here in a few moments, but the resurrection appearances happened first in Jerusalem in the very area where these things took place. Yeah. So that one's out. Um, yeah. There's also the shallow grave theory, and John Dominic Croson is the one who advocates this one. Uh, he, he claims that, uh, that since Jesus was poor, he wouldn't have been given a proper burial, and most likely he would have just been sh- thrown into a shallow grave, and uh, this, this, he would have either decomposed quickly or dogs, he said, may have come and eaten the, the corpse. And so there wouldn't have been any evidence of, of a body there. He'd been, he would have been thrown in a common grave. And he, he would claim that, um, that Romans did not give proper burials to um, crucified victims. That is actually false. I've done some digging. It was actually one of the classes I had with Habermas and come to find out that the Roman Empire actually allowed families to bury crucified victims up until the time of Emperor Caligula, who was a crazy he was crazy he was insane literally he was insane caligula did not take office until 37 a.d and ruled through 41 a.d only a four-year span okay uh jesus was crucified under the emperor that came before caligula and uh and, and and he was crucified in either 30 or 33 a.d 
in, mo- in my opinion, a lot of people say 30. In my opinion, in my estimation, I think it was probably more likely uh, 33. But even if that's the case, uh, that is still four years outside of the transition from one emperor to the other. Yeah. And so during the time of, uh, of the emperor um, of, of Jesus' time, um, oh my gosh, I, I'm just having a hard time thinking of things tonight. Um, so you have Augustus. Uh, why can't I think of the, the guy who was in Jesus' time? Anyhow, uh, during his time, he was uh, he was known to have allowed many people, many crucified victims, uh, to have been had a proper burial. Well, didn't they also find? Uh, didn't they also find a ossuary? That had a uh, crucified person in it. Yes, Tiberius. Tiberius is the one. Tiberius. Yes. Augustus was the one before, as Jesus. Uh, well, before he was born, Tiberius. Uh, well, no, yeah, I'm sorry. He would rule while Jesus was born because he ruled to 14 A.D. Tiberius ruled from 14 to 37, and then Caligula was 37 through 41. And yes, you're right. Uh, there was a uh, ossuary found. Obviously, this person was given a proper burial, uh, and there was a spike mm-hmm. that was uh, still found in the heel bone. And so because of that, you, you can find that very thing that, Crucified victims were allowed to have proper burials. And again, according to the Roman records, Tiberius was was known for allowing crucified victims to have a proper burial. And then that's in one way, one of the ways that he was able to semi-keep the peace, uh, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, that, right. that was one of the things, because he tried to, even when these things took place, he tried to allow these these uh, ceremonies and things to happen to kind of keep the peace. Caligula, like I said, he was crazy, so that's that really began to stop uh, during his day. But that was after the time of Jesus, so it doesn't even apply. Right, right. Amazing how you just do a little bit of thinking on some of this, and even outside of the Bible, and you start looking at some of the historical things that have been found archaeologically and what we kind of dig up and find and, and, and are able to verify or create a trustworthiness in the time period with the Bible, with various things. Yeah, and, and, and again, going to that, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough how important the Yohanan, uh, that was his name, Yohanan, I can't emphasize enough how much Johannin, the discovery of Johannin's heel bone is because it tells us two things. One, as we already mentioned, people were given, crucified victims were given proper burials. And two, we can show that people were crucified just as the Bible says that they were, that they were nailed to a cross. Right. Now, not everybody was nailed to a cross. Some people were tied with ropes. Right, right. But that I, does, yep. yeah. But that does go to show that uh, people were. And the only reason we even have that preserved now is because it hit whenever they, whenever the nail went in, it hit a knot and it bent around the knot, and so they had to take that. They had to cut that piece off because they normally reuse crosses. But they had to cut that piece off, and a piece of that olive wood was there with uh, with the heel bone. And you could even see a piece of that olive wood even to this day, or a piece of that wood. Ugh. Oof. Oof, oof, oof. 
<laughs> so what's the uh, what's the, so so what's the really uh, wonky one then? Okay, so these you, other ones seem pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, well they they're pretty bad. You're right. So the swoon theory, the stolen body theory, the shallow grave victory, but then there's some people <laughs> who believe that Jesus was an alien and he was transported up by the mothership, and so. There it is. There it is. And so the reason you don't have a body is because Scotty already done beamed him up. Got zapped out of the sky. (laughs) How did I know that one was coming? (laughs) So as the one guy says, I'm not saying aliens did it, but aliens did it, according to what? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Too much History Channel for those people. Yeah. <laughs> Probably before History Channel was even thought of, though. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! So yeah, that, those, so, those are the four major uh, ones. Uh, I'm mean, like I said, there are many others we could mention, but those are the four main ones. Uh, just to kind of give three of the more serious ones that are out there, and one of the really silly ones. All of them are silly, in my opinion, but that one truly is mm-hmm. very silly. Yeah, I mean, you can understand the stolen body one. Um, you, you know, I mean, if somebody were to, that would be the most plausible. Yeah. In in that, that would be, um, that would be understood. You know, I, I guess you could see that or understand that, but not to dig into the what may be coming later, but. There were people that just tried to uh, say that to distract away from it long enough to be able to then try to find a body to replace it. That's that's possible. Now, now, granted, they didn't have the DNA analysis that we have these days, but <laughs> but but let's just let's just stop and, and consider something here. There was no anticipation during the first century of a dying and rising Messiah. That's there, right. There was, that was not even close. Because if you look not at... Not even on if, the radar. Not even on the radar. If you look at the if the response of Martha to Jesus, uh, when, when Jesus says yep. to her, your brother will rise again, she says, I know he'll rise at the last day. If you look at the book of, if you look at the writings of Josephus, that goes along with the thinking of Pharisees of that day and time. And the Essenes, excuse me, the Essenes had a similar viewpoint as well. So that goes along; it coincides with that notion that they had of, of the final resurrection happening at the end end of time. But they did not anticipate that happening then, and that's really part of the reason why I think many people thought that Jesus was going to instantly come back because. Of that notion that the that the idea they had of this is going to be something that happens at the very end of time. Um, now, thankful for us, you know that, that there's a little length of time between the first and second appearing of Jesus, and uh, it allows us to exist and be here and be able to talk about this. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, you're right. Of all of the theories, that's the most logical. But it really even then doesn't make sense because there wasn't yep. even that ide- ideology. Of the time, so why would they no. have stolen the body to proclaim something like that? Especially when Joseph of Arimathea gave him a far better burial than what they could have at the time. 
Yeah. Yeah. And not to add any more on that, but, but you know, the swoon theory, when they, when they, when they, uh, ritualistic put him in the tomb he would have been buried with close to what 70 pounds 100 pounds worth of of spices and and oils and towel or uh, linens and and such it, it was about close to 100 so, pounds yeah and so, there, so there you're dealing with a, a dead or not a dead but a a you could say in theory their theory a body that was could barely even hold himself up, let alone get a hundred pounds off of him. Well, and two, when a body was prepared, you, you had, you know, so I, let me just say, and maybe we can do a podcast on this. I believe the Shroud of Turin is authentic. Mm. If it is, which I believe the evidence seems to suggest that it is, it even shows that it's the exterior, the exterior shroud of an interior wrapping. That the the body was yeah. wrapped tight, and in fact, if you if you look at it, you can see if, that that the that the arms are held close to we're, together and the folded over. Yeah. yeah, and the and the legs are I just kicked over my trash can. Uh, the legs were were held close to together, and it's wound up tight. It's wound up tight. A lot of times they would have put um, even things in the mouth uh, as well. So. There is not a way, physically speaking, that a person could have gotten out of that. You know, here's the amazing thing about the shroud. It appears that, mm-hmm. according to the latest research, it shows evidence and signs of something going through it. That it, right. it that it was there, but then it came out of it. And I think that kind of matches even, you know, what we would anticipate with yeah. a resurrection. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, just, and you think about it, okay, so the Jewish people and and that culture that time period, not just the Jewish people, but the culture that time period, they were very familiar with death. They didn't have a, a morgue where, where just a certain doctor took, you know, took it, you know, took a, a person. I mean, they knew what death was. Everybody did. And, and so for, to have a body wrapped or to have proper proper burial at that time you had to do it before rigor mortis set in before all of those things happened so yeah i mean just just the thought just thinking through the process of of what people had gone through in that time period yeah well, some it, of these series just don't it, i mean it, they think that they think the resurrection is the one that's off the wall <laughs> well the thing that amazes me is is the resurrection of Lazarus and and if the tomb of Lazarus is yeah. true in in Israel as uh, where they think it is it would be it being like underneath it would have been like a uh, underground tomb um not not like built in rock but it would have been kind of underground like where you step down into it and i kind of almost envision when Lazarus rose from the dead that he may have been able to wiggle up and stand up and Jesus says loose him and let him free and i think he's telling him says Guys, you better hurry up and let him go and let get him out of that stuff, or he's going to die again. I'm going to do the whole thing all over again. So, <laughs> so he's bound up tight. He says, "Loose him and let him go." And so, uh, right, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, how early was the was the message of the resurrection proclaimed? 
very, very, very early. Um, it, let yeah, me like just, three days later. Well, exactly. But historically speaking, if we use the historical method and look at the early creeds, then we can see that uh, that the proclamation. I mean, it's it's beyond dispute that the proclamation of the resurrection was early. Uh, so, for instance, if you I'm mean, look, looking at Habermas's material here, a synopsis of he, that he gives of creeds and facts in his book, uh, the uh, historical Jesus: Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ. He says, from the sources of creeds, we find reports of some incidences of Jesus' life, but especially numerous details concerning his death and resurrection. We see Jesus was a real flesh and blood person, Philippians 2.6, 1 Timothy 3.16, 1 John 4.2, all creeds, who was physically born in the lineage of David, Acts 13.23, Romans 1.3-4, 2 Timothy 2.8, also creedal, and came from the town of Nazareth, Acts 2.22, 4.10, and 5.38. Uh, we see that even John preceded Jesus. This is told to us in the creeds of Acts 10, 37, 13, 24, and 25. Uh, it is implied that Jesus was baptized, Romans 10, 9. Uh, we see that his, uh, that his ministry began in Galilee, extended through Judea, Acts 10.37. He performed miracles, Acts 2.22, 10.38, and fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies, and there are numerous passages that uh, show that. And so we see uh, that in, fi- in spite of the fact that he was a righteous man in 1 Peter 3.18, also creedal, he died for the sins of others, 1 Peter 3.18, Romans 4.25, 1 Timothy 2.6, we see he was killed. We don't need to go through the creeds on that because we've got numerous evidence to suggest that. By crucifixion, we see several evidences of that. Dying in the city of Jerusalem. This is Acts 13.27, uh, Acts 10.39, creedal material. At the hands of wicked men, 2.23 of Acts. He was buried, Acts 3.29. This is a creedal part here too. In 1 Corinthians 15.4, there's actually early creedal material to show that he was buried and these events caused the disciples to doubt and despair. Now, we also see that the tomb was empty. 1 Corinthians 15.4 said he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. It's implied Jesus was raised from the dead. We see Acts 2.24, Acts 2.31-32, 2, uh, 2, Acts 3.15, 3.26, Acts 4.10, 10, 5.30, 10.40, 13.30-37, 2 Timothy 2.8, all creedal. Two of these persons, namely James, 1 Corinthians 15.7, and Paul, 1 Corinthians 15.8-9, were formerly skeptics before they met the risen Jesus. We could go on and on and on and on. But the creeds, these things are early. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3-9, through 9, are held by even Bart Ehrman. This is not a Christian. To have been between months to no later than three years after the crucifixion of Jesus. These creeds date to no later than 36. Most of them date to within months of the resurrection of Jesus. It's to the level and degree that Richard Baucom, and I have the book even right here, right beside me, in his book, Jesus and the God of Israel, says... In the preface, in, in, uh, on page X of the preface, and also on page 235 of the book, that the earliest Christology was the highest Christology. They held that Jesus was God right. come in flesh. They held to the death, burial, 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the early material, maybe not all of the New Testament is that early, but the early creedal material is extremely early, which means the proclamation that Jesus had risen from the dead happened right after the time of the resurrection. It was formalized within months, that is. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? How we can have that kind of evidence of, of something that happened that early or that, that soon after, but yet our natural reaction is to still um, doubt it. But yet we hold on to things um, that are in ancient writings of secular writings that we hold on to them as facts and true and there's five seven thousand years in between the when the event happened and when the writing happened yeah and in this you what have... is it in our nature that we're that what is it in our nature that we just instantly don't want to take the verification that these creeds were were spoken of months after the resurrection. Well, I think it's the impact that the resurrection makes. I think that's why the natural tendency is to push back against it. For some people, it's too good to be true. I've heard some people say, well, this is just too good to be true. Uh, and so that maybe because of the depressive mindset that they have or uh, you know, a kind of a pessimistic outlook on life, they think there's no way this could be true. It's too good to be true. Nothing's that good on this world. in this world. But what if it is? But furthermore, I think the larger issue that we face uh, in humanity is the fact that, uh, quite honestly, if the resurrection is true, going back to what you mentioned about C.S. Lewis, if the resurrection is true, then that means that he is exactly who he said he was, which means he is the Lord of creation. It means he's the Lord. Uh, he's God come in flesh. Yeah. And that implies a bunch of other things, and it makes very exclusivistic yeah. uh, truth claims that people are very uncomfortable with. So there's kind of like a domino effect that if this thing is really true, then then this is going to impact my life in a tremendous fashion. And that means the things that Jesus said and did are right, are true, and this not only has an impact on my life now, but it has an impact on my life in the hereafter. Man. Yeah. You can totally see that too. You 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 just see that in people. Um it's happening today. We're rewriting who Jesus is. So, well, it's like uh, someone said. Uh, yeah. I saw on social. You don't see a lot of good stuff on social media, but I thought this one was good. A guy was talking about how he was on a <laughs> took a plane ride with a lady, and uh, she was talking about how she was an atheist, but she believed in objective morality. And so uh, he said, uh, "said Well, if you believe in objective morality." That points to the existence of God, and he he went he parsed it out piece by piece to show how objective morality leads to God. And by the end of the conversation, you know what she said? I don't believe in objective morality anymore. <laughs> she she had rather changed her viewpoint. <laughs> she had rather changed her viewpoint of objective morality than to accept the fact that God exists. <laughs> but she'd rather change her view. On objective morality than to believe that God is true. Yep. Man, my goodness. And I think that's what we see now. People won't admit to it, but I think there's something to the to, to the notion that 
in my opinion, the evidence is strong that the that the universe had a start point. And not only that, that, that the evidence is strong that uh, inflation cannot account for endless physical u- universes. It just doesn't work that way. The evidence doesn't show that. So what people had rather do is to find another loophole to come with an uh, even more nonsensical theory about how the universe yeah. came to be instead of saying, well, maybe there's a divine creator that brought all things to be. I mean, that's a whole other topic, but it still follows suit with what you see going on. Yeah. Yeah. That image just popped into my head on uh, um, reasonablefaith.org's uh, um website where where uh, they they uh talk about the multiverse yeah. and it has this little cartoon picture where this little multiverse factory is there pumping out all these multiverses <laughs> it's like well the, the, you had to have something that was making the multiverse so well, and that's what the borg guth lincoln theorem shows and, and the math yeah. is strong on this theorem that, that shows that quite quite honestly that even if there is a multiverse even the multiverse would have had to have a start point. So you don't get around it. You just push it. You just kick the ball. You punt the ball down the field a little bit more. Yep. Kick the can further down the road. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. So so is the, is the res- resurrection of Jesus a foundational belief of Christianity? Absolutely. Um, there's two passages of Scripture I'd like to read here. And uh, the, the, the let me just say, First of all, that there are some passages, there are some beliefs that are not worth dying over. So, preference mm-hmm. of Bible translations, um, style of music, um, even some of the see, even some of these second and third level issues that we have in theology. Um, they're not, you know, for instance, I'm a Molinist. I'm also very strongly um, in the Thomistic mindset. I don't agree with Aquinas on everything, but 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 I'm really largely a Thomist, but I'm open to middle knowledge, so I, that makes me a Molinist. But I'm willing to admit that even though I think the evidence is strong for middle knowledge, it may be that it's not true. Okay. Again, I think this, the evidence is strong for it. So, but if I'm wrong on that, that's not going to really change the trajectory of my salvation. It's not going to impact my theology in a vast, uh, vast form. But the resurrection is a foundational belief worth dying for. This, this is something that yeah. our faith is built upon. It's the linchpin, quite honestly, of Christianity. Yeah. And so if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 26, let me just read this. I know time's getting away from us, but I just want to read this, uh, a couple passages of Scripture, and some of the other ones we'll just have to skim through later on. But he says this, Paul says this, After the creed, he says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. 
Christ the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then at the end, or the, excuse me, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. And so that's transformational. That's, that's incredibly transformational. Through Christ's resurrection, all will be made alive. And then we go on down to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4. And this is, this is quickly becoming one of my favorite passages of Scripture, even highlighted in my, my Bible on Lagos. Second Corinthians 4, 16-18 says this, Therefore we do not give up hope. Now understand this, we're going through difficult times, we're going through times of suffering. Look what he says, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Listen to this next verse, it's incredible. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory, so we do not focus on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And then in chapter 5, he goes through the passage of Scripture saying that to be absent from the body is to truly be present with the Lord. And ultimately, that's going to uh, 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 reach the climax when we reach uh, uh, the culmination when Christ returns and we receive our glorified body. It's not going to be exactly physical as ours is now. It is going to be physical, but it's going to be glorified. It's going to be a spiritual body as was Jesus. It's going to take this physical body, but it's going to make it into something even greater and even grander when that happens. So it, it is definitely a foundational belief. And as Paul says in another passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, that if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we're still in our sins, yeah. and we are people most yes. to be pitied. It's pointless. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that is one of the biggest, I think that's one of the biggest points Paul makes, it's probably one of them, I, I want to say one of them stamp moments in the scriptures where it's, you know, if, if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, then then what are we doing here? Exactly. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. So, some claim that the Gospels uh, have, a, have a conflict in their portrayal of, of the appearance of the risen Jesus. Do we have a timeline of appearances, and can the appearances of the risen Jesus in the Gospels be harmonized? Yeah, I had to go back and pull from an article I wrote uh, called The 40 Days of Easter uh, back in 2018 uh, to get this time timeline. It, it is false to say mm. that, the, that the Gospels conflict on this because it's easy right. to make a timeline if we allow for the harmonization of the Gospels. For some reason, that's falling out of favor. In, in in modern uh, scholarship, and I don't understand why. Uh, I think that th that you can still harmonize the Gospels uh, to a great degree. Uh, I mean, without even having to stretch some things. Now, yeah, of course, you know, some things are harder to fit, but I don't think that they're as hard to, to fit together as we often claim that they are. Um, so, for instance, in one gospel may say that t two blind men were healed, one came back. Another gospel just says one blind man was healed and came back. Is there, a, is there a conflict? Is there a contradiction in that? No. No. It's just that one gospel re reporter uh, focused on the one man who was healed and came back, whereas the other one 
gave a more full explanation of what happened. There was one who came back and one who didn't, but two people were healed. Right. You're saying one person was healed and came back didn't didn't assume or didn't uh, uh, say that it was exclusive that he couldn't have healed other people. He's just talking about the one person who was healed. So the same thing happens with the resurrection appearances. So I've kind of laid out 13 uh, points from the Gospels that we can kind of lay out here on this Ash Wednesday as we're recording this. I think it's only suitable getting ready for Easter. Number one, the first person who saw Jesus alive from the dead was Mary Magdalene. Uh, and I, I won't read this because we're, we're running short on time. Mary Magdalene was the first to see him in the tomb, John 20, 11 through 18. Now notice he says, go get Peter. Well, she, well, we see that she goes back to get Peter and John. And the women may have been there at the tomb uh, whenever she came back. Uh, or, or however the case may be. They, she saw the angels first, let me say. She went back to get Peter and John. They came back. The women may have been there with her. Peter and John may have left. Then then Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. He could have also appeared to the women at the tomb in Matthew 28, 8-10. Uh, some point in time, we don't know when it happened on Easter Sunday, Jesus met Peter individually and uh, spoke to him and had and, and, Peter saw Jesus alive. This is Luke. This is recorded in Luke twenty four thirty four and also First Corinthians fifteen five. Sometime during the day of Easter, Peter saw Jesus one on one. The Emmaus disciples saw saw uh, Jesus later that day. Now, here's the amazing thing about Easter that's often missed: a few people saw Jesus alive early that morning, but there's reports popping up everywhere of people who have said they've seen Jesus. But the poor disciples outside of outside of Peter and, and the women, the poor disciples are, are hearing all these reports, but they're thinking, what is going on? He's not That's at the right. tomb. His body's not there. People say they're seeing him alive. What in the, What is up with this? Well, then later on, the Emmaus disciples who were walking to, uh, to Emmaus, they see Jesus on the road. They realize that it's Jesus by the time they get back to their home. And they run back to Jerusalem as fast as they can possibly, as fast as their legs will take them there. By the time they get there, Jesus has already appeared to the disciples. They come in, they see Jesus. Luke 24, 13 through 32 is where you can find this story. And they talk about how their hearts burned when Jesus was with them. So in, we see the 11 disciples see Jesus without Thomas. Luke 24, 36 through 49, John 20, 19 through 23. And then also, it, it, it is implied that the 70, uh, excuse me, let me, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the 11 see, disciples see, Jesus, uh, see uh, Jesus without Thomas. A week later, poor Thomas, he's hearing of all these stories. A week later, all twelve, all, all eleven apostles see Jesus, including Thomas. This is where you can find this in John twenty twenty four through twenty nine. Later on, moving ahead, there were numerous occasions where large groups of people saw Jesus. There were at least five hundred people who saw Jesus alive at one time. First Corinthians fifteen six. Now they only counted men in official tallies, and I believe the same thing applies here. Not everyone agrees with me here, but I think it's very possible that you could have had two thousand people who saw Jesus alive by the time you count women and children. Not everybody agrees with me, but I, I, I think that it holds. James and other family members saw Jesus at some point in time, either on Easter Sunday or sometime through the week. 
Uh, that happened in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. We don't really know when it happened, but I think it probably happened on Easter Sunday. Uh, Jesus reinstates Peter a later t- time in John 21, 1 through 23, when they're meeting at the shore. He's in Galilee at this time, and on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he reinstates Peter to the ministry. At some point in time, we don't know when it happens, uh, it's implied in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, the other disciples saw Jesus alive from the dead. Remember that Jesus had insti- instituted or, or uh, ordained, I would be a better word, he ordained 72 apostles outside of the 12 apostles. Now, he had the three right. to four inner circle disciples, the 12 disciples, and then he also had 72 other disciples who went out two by two. They would have seen Jesus alive from the dead at some point in time. While also in Galilee, is he gave the Great Commission. We see, if you follow the st- story, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, he gives the Great Commission. This is back at Galilee, somewhere in Galilee, perhaps back on the Mount of, uh, the where he had the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe that's where it was. I don't know. We just really don't know where it was. But then we also see that he ascends into heaven, and he's seen by several people at that point in time. At Acts 1, 1 through 11, you can see this. Uh, and then you also see the case of Paul, who sees Jesus on the road to uh, uh, to uh, Tarsus. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 is where you can read that story. So there's not any conflict. Now, yes, there are some instances where we see James and his family member meet Jesus, members meet Jesus. Mary must would have met Jesus. Others in his family would have met Jesus at some point in time. Peter met Jesus sometime on Easter Sunday. We don't know exactly when. But there's not a contradiction in this time frame, and it all fits perfectly. Yeah. I think it boils down to a want and will. Exactly. And and let me also say here, the the chances are highly likely, by the time you count the tally, that you would have probably seen several thousand people who saw Jesus alive from the dead. Uh, Because you had at least 500, and if I'm right, and they only counted men, that we know this that's yeah. the case with the with the feeding of the five thousand. It may have been fifteen hundred, two thousand who saw him. We know that seventy two yeah. disciples must have seen him. We you know, and there's these other large groups. We don't even know how many people were in these other large groups yeah. that saw Jesus. So there's yeah. there's a likelihood that maybe and just, you know, throwing this number out there, it could have been five thousand people or so who saw Jesus when that forty day period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so there that goes into our, our next question. So let's go into the following one. How does the resurre- resurrection impact, impact our eschatology and our view of the new creation? Oh, there's so much scripture here I'd love yeah, to read, but we are just yeah. over an hour, and so I, I need to bring this thing to a to a close as much as I hate to. I love the resurrection. I could talk on the resurrection all the time. I know. It's my favorite topic. Um, well, it's it's the linchpin. It's the key. It's the it, it, it's the lock. It's all of the, it's the hinge. It's <laughs> yeah, all those, yeah. you know, analogies, you could say, um, of what, what Christianity is, why it's different than anything else. Absolutely. Why it, it, why it rings true with Jesus's words, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." Absolutely. So, 
five things I think we can see here. I, I, this is just, again, scratching the surface. That's an understatement. Uh, you know, if we see that we have a glorified body in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 48, uh, this body is going to be completely different than the one we have now. It's going to be a reunion of the soul and the body together, but it's going to be a brand new body unlike anything we could ever think or imagine. Uh, we're going to see we see that our souls are transformed in John 6 39 through 40 and 11:24. We see that uh, we're going to have a new creation. The creation itself groans for this this resurrection of creation itself in Romans 8:18 8, through 25. We see that also in Revelation 21:22. The old heaven and earth are are are, uh, are destroyed, and there's a new heaven and earth uh, that's that's a resurrected creation. Uh, we see that paradise will lead to the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, new earth. Uh, that this spiritual paradise, to be absent from this body, is to be present with the Lord. This paradise will lead to our resurrection, and our resurrection will lead to this new creation, uh, where, we'll, we'll, where God will be with us. There'll be no separation between God and, and us, and there'll really be no separation between the children of God. Um, one of the things I think that's going to make heaven heavenly is not only the fact that we're going to see Jesus, we're going to see the triune God and all of his glory, but we also will be able to love one another as God commanded us to. You know, there's always misunderstandings. We always have uh, differences of opinion, things of this nature. We have uh, people who have hard feelings toward one another because of something happened 50 years ago. It's really hard for us as people of God to love one another as Christ has called us to. But at that time, during at the, in that age, we'll finally be able to love one another. We'll be able to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we'll finally be able to love one another as God has called us to. But we also see that because of the resurrection, we have the promise of a glorified body, the transformed souls, the new creation, paradise leading to heaven. But there's a flip side of this as well, that Gehenna, this spiritual abode of those who are condemned, lead to a lake of fire. And Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, show that there's a general resurrection where everyone's going to be resurrected, but the, but the, uh, the yeah. question is not whether a person is going to be resurrected. The question is going to be, where's the location? Uh, where's the real yeah. estate where they're going to be <laughs> yeah. in for, for all of eternity? And so uh, whereas paradise leads to the new creation, Gehenna will lead to the lake of fire. And so uh, mm. the, the resurrection is not only gives hope to us, as believers, but it also gives a warning to those who aren't, because again, hell was not intended for people. It was intended for the devil and his angels uh, to quarantine them away from his creation, because even then, you know, they're eternal people. You know, I think there are strong reasons for believing in uh, the etern eternal nature of all people, not in eternity past, but eternity future, because we're made in the image of God. So again, the location is going to be the important issue at hand, and quite honestly, Christ seeks, as we've talked about last week, Christ's desire is to save everyone. He wants everyone to be saved. and uh, But unfortunately, not everybody will. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to even try to do get into the minimal facts? Do you want to just touch on that so we can maybe 
expound on that maybe the next uh, next time so we can do uh, do it justice or <laughs> yeah let, let me just just quickly let me just quickly throw this out there uh, most I, I'm going to dare say most people who follow our podcast have probably already heard the minimal facts argument and probably could be able to to say it by heart, but these are just six or seven things. In fact, there are even more that, that Habermas benches, even 12, uh, many other things. And if you get his book that we just mentioned, he, he lists out a whole bunch of different things that could be shown by the creeds. But just simply put, six six main ones and one extra one. Uh, that's uh, The first one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Uh, two disciples had experiences that they thought where they thought they had seen the risen Jesus. Now we know that they did, uh, but he words it that way because the majority of scholars agree that they had something happen. Uh, and what happened is okay. the differences of opinion. That's where it arises. The resurrection preaching was early. Everybody agrees to that. Uh, the consensus that is that uh, the disciples were transformed and willing willing to die for what they knew to be true. That, that's accepted by everyone. Uh, James was transformed, that's accepted. Paul was transformed, that's accepted. And at least 75% of scholars will, will attest to the, uh, the, the existence of an empty tomb. So those are the minimal facts. We could expound on that, but we'll just have to leave that right there where it is uh, for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there but, you go. I and mean, probably go back into um, quite a few of the podcasts and uh, even some of the articles um, and even into the layman's manual um, on Christian apologetics. Um, you go into a, a good-sized discussion on the minimal facts there. And let, let me just say one more thing before we wrap this thing up and put a nice tiny nice bow on it. Believe it or not, we only have two more podcasts in Christology, but we may actually do a couple of extra specials. We're kind of uh, thinking about that because there's a couple other areas that we, we haven't covered. Uh, so just to let you know that the, the series is, is, is coming to a close, but we actually may have a couple of extra things we may throw out there to really kind of bring this thing nice and tight. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, go check out the Layman's Manual um, and go check out maybe whatever other uh, podcasts or uh, uh, articles that we have on Bellator Christi um, that are talking about the minimal facts and that can, might maybe be able to help you with what we just talked about uh, during this whole podcast. So anyway, we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us. And we value that time. Our prayers of this podcast help stretch your mind and as a place to strengthen your faith we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, Go on, friends. friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast and BellatorChristi.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Mm-hmm.
This is Brian Chilton with the Bellator Christie Podcast and BellatorChristie.com. And I want to bring to you the theology thought uh, for today. Uh, occasionally we'll bring these uh, editorial comments uh, when certain things uh, happen across our world and across our time uh, that it, uh, deserves to be looked at from a theological, biblical, and apologetic perspective. For our theology thought today, I want to look at uh, the situation that's going on across the world, um, especially uh, the tensions that are rising with uh, the uh, Russian attack on the U- on on Ukraine. One of the things that I have seen uh, taking place in our own land uh, just recently is a seemingly rise uh, that's that's taking place with a thought process that all Russians are for the uh, Ukrainian attack, and that's just simply not true. One of the great dangers we face. Uh, in any tumultuous situation, is that we often look at people in totalities using such language as all uh, or never. Anytime we do that, we're setting ourselves up for failure. For instance, in World War II, Japanese Americans were looked at as, as, the, as if they were the enemy, as if they all supported communism or they all supported the uh, attacks that were taking place in Pearl Harbor. Obviously, that wasn't true. But because of that thinking, individuals were were taken from their homes and placed in certain camps. The same thing happens all all across of history as we look at even what took place in Nazi Germany. Even before Nazis took took rise in Germany, uh, Jews were being viewed as the the problem for, for Germany. And obviously, that wasn't true. Anytime we look at individuals... In such, a, in such a case, this leads to bad circumstances, and it leads to horrific results. In contrast, Jesus reminds us that each and every person is made in God's image. And we need to look at each person for their character and for their worth in God's eyes. Jesus provides us a teaching that very few want to hear anymore. And it comes to us in Matthew chapter 5 saying, love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Or some people once said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Yes, there are times that call for us to take action. Obviously, I think certain things that have taken place across the nation and across the world uh, are are necessary to, to stop the rise of evil. But at the end of the day, we must remember that as people of God, we are called to love everyone. That doesn't mean that we don't take a stand. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, do what, what is necessary to defend our families and to defend our nation. But it does mean that racism of any ilk and of any kind is wrong. And we must stand opposed to that type of thinking. It's just a thought to consider from a theological perspective here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University. 
which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.